true. As they're doing that, I encourage you to turn in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. While you're turning to 1 Kings 19, we're going to have to multitask together because I want to draw your attention to our guest registration cards. These are located throughout our sanctuary in the back of the pew. So wherever you're seated this morning, you'll find one of these in the back of the pew in front of you. And if you are a guest, a newcomer worshiping with us today, we would ask you to fill this out. And then as you leave today, if you would drop it in the offering box in the foyer area on your way out, or we've created another way for you to give us the same information. If you prefer, you can log on to our website and you can go to fbcchickasha.org slash connect. There you'll find an online web form. Fill that out. Just simply type in your information, submit that. It will come to us and we will have that information as well. If you're joining us for worship this, this morning online, we welcome you with us as well and would encourage you, even if you're joining via our online means this morning through our streams or uh, if you've joined us perhaps on our radio broadcast locally on Cool 105.5, that you would go to our website, fill out that simple form, fbcchickasha.org slash connect and submit that information so that we can pray with you and we can connect with you as well. We're in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling Lesson Learned because we're looking at lessons that are learned through the, the experiences that we have together in life. Last week we looked at Joseph and all that Joseph went through in his story and, and how God used what his brothers meant for evil. God used it for good in Joseph's life. And he positioned Joseph not only to save his family, but ultimately to save a nation and preserve God's promise to his covenant people, Israel. Today we're going to look at another key character in the Old Testament story, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 we're going to look at a part of Elijah's story. You know, I think it's important when we think about lesson learned, we think about learning lessons that sometimes the lessons that we learn come through difficult moments, don't they? Sometimes in life we learn lessons because of the the mountaintop moments, the the great the the the, the truly the blessings of life that we experience. Sometimes the lessons come through life's darkest moments, through life's hardest moments. As we walk through hardship, as we walk through difficulty and pain, and we learn lessons in that process that God uses to refine us, to shape and mold us. And this morning we're going to see a lesson that is learned in Elijah's life through such a time. Through what would rightly be characterized in Elijah's own story as some of his darkest days, some of his most difficult and depressed moments, and yet God uses the experience that Elijah has to lead him to accomplish great things. And ultimately, Elijah responds in a way of obedience to God's leadership. And, and so there's some great lessons that we're going to see as we study this story. A little bit of the backstory of what's taken place here. Elijah of Tishbe is a, a prophet, one of the great prophets. In fact, in my own humble opinion, I consider Elijah to be perhaps the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, even though typically he might fly a little under our radar because he's not one of the writing prophets. We have the prophets who, who write books of the Old Testament, and so we think of Isaiah and Jeremiah, we think of Ezekiel and Daniel, who are all, no doubt, incredible prophets in their own right, and God did many great and amazing things through them. But Elijah accomplishes some incredible things in the name of God through service to the Lord, and yet 
He isn't a writing prophet. He doesn't write a book. There's no book of Elijah that we have named after him. Instead, we find the story of Elijah's life and ministry in 1 Kings and then just a portion of it in the early chapters of 2 Kings. And, and so we see what's happening in Elijah's life here as he has just had what we would describe as a mountaintop moment, pun intended in this case, because we know that in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is with the, the prophets of Baal atop Mount Carmel, and, and he's challenged them. He's challenged them to uh, essentially a duel, if you want to think of it that way, to prove whose God was the true God. There has been famine and, uh, and, and, and there has been drought in the land. Because of the drought, there had been famine. There, so things weren't growing. The, the rain didn't fall for years. And it's reached the point of real desperation. And so Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to meet him on top of Mount Carmel and to prove whose God is the greater God. And that's what we have in 1 Kings 18. And, and they demonstrate, truly God demonstrates his power and authority. And so there in, on the scene, just to kind of recap some of that, if you don't know, you can go back and study that by reading 1 Kings 18. It really is phenomenal. And what we find is that the prophets of Baal cry out to their, their false god all day long. They cry out that their god would send rain, that he would open the heavens and rain would fall. And nothing happens. There's silence. And so Elijah mocks them. He mocks these prophets. And he says, Try a, little, try a little again, maybe a little more fervently. Maybe, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he's taking a nap. You know, he's mocking them. And, and ultimately, there's a point where nothing is going to happen. And so Elijah builds an altar. And, and, and imagine the scene as he builds the altar. And, and not only does he build the altar, he digs a trench around his altar. And then they bring water and they pour water on the altar. Now, water at this point in the, in the story due to the drought was scarce. It wasn't something that was common. The, the ponds had all dried up, you, you see. And, and so the fact that Elijah brought water to pour on this altar seemed, well, it seemed wasteful, if not altogether totally irresponsible. And yet Elijah has them pour water on the altar. And then he kneels before God and he prays. And he asks God to show his power and his authority by sending fire to consume this altar that he has created and the sacrifice on the altar. And that's exactly what God did. God sent fire from heaven and it consumed the altar. It consumed the sacrifice. And it even it licked up the dust is the way that it's described. That it, that it burned up the dust itself. And God's power is clearly demonstrated. It doesn't stop there though because then Elijah orders that the prophets of Baal be rounded up and they were and they were killed for their essentially for their blasphemy against the one true almighty God. And so it's this incredible scene and yet when the word reaches the ears of the queen Jezebel, she's infuriated by what has taken place. Because Jezebel being a foreign queen was she was a worshipper of Baal. In fact, she was one who was who was responsible, not exclusively, but chiefly responsible for influencing the Israelites to turn their backs on God and worship the, the false God of Baal. And so when the word reaches Jezebel, she's infuriated by this. And she declares that she is going to hunt Elijah down and that she will not rest until he is killed for what he has done. And that's where we pick up the story now in 1 Kings chapter 19. I want you to begin reading with me in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. Ahab, now that's the king, that's King Ahab, 
told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he, behold, there was a head, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, the wind and earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets of the sword, and I, even only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu to be the son of Nimji, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shephat, of Abdel Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so what an incredible scene here as God speaks to Elijah in such a powerful way. And yet, remember, this occurs on the heels of another incredible event. In fact... In the opening verses of chapter 19, we find that Elijah hears the message that Jezebel had sent, and he fled for his life, didn't he? He fled from the south. Now, if you know anything about the, uh, the, just the lay of the land in, in Israel, then you know that Mount Carmel is in the north. It's the northwest near the coast, and that the place that he fled to, first to Beersheba, and then also from there, a further journey into the wilderness is in the south. So... Elijah fled south to the land of Judah and then from there further into the wilderness. Now, this is significant 
The fact that he fled in and of itself is, is significant. But where he fled and, and, and what he did along the way, these are significant things that occurred. See, what we find here is that Elijah is on a bit of an emotional roller coaster. His life was full of highs and lows, ups and downs. And, and what's happening here truly represents the lows in Elijah's life. Today, if Elijah were alive today, if these things were happening today, we would rightly describe Elijah here as being depressed, that he's suffering from depression. And if you are someone who's ever suffered depression, if you've ever felt like your life is that emotional roller coaster of highs and lows, then I'm here to tell you the story of Elijah is a story for you. And and just as Elijah hears from God, the angel of the Lord comes to him, and then and then the voice of God calls out to Elijah in the midst of his situation. I'm here to tell you today that God wants to speak to you in the midst of your despair, in the midst of the depths of what you may be walking through. It's a reminder that even when we are low, we are not forgotten to God. But yet, in Elijah's situation, we find that in his despair and in fear, he runs for his life. But along the way, not only does he run for his life, but if you want to think of it this way, he abandons his calling. You see, when Elijah traveled south and, and told his servant to remain in a certain place, that's symbolic of the fact that Elijah has, that the fact that he's left his servant means that he's, that he's abandoning his ministry. The servant was representative of his calling and, and, and the fact that God had anointed him as a prophet to share the word. See, Elijah's task was a difficult one. God had called something to Elijah incredibly difficult. There was an enormous burden that he carried as a prophet of God, one that not only brought him into the the crosshairs, so to speak, of the queen and of the king, but one that truly brought the scorn of an entire nation upon him. And Elijah felt the weight of that scorn. He felt the weight of that judgment. He felt the weight of their anger and their animosity toward him. And he says, essentially, with his actions, he says, God, it's too much. I can't handle this. I can't bear all it is that you've called me to bear. And so in leaving his servant, it's symbolically he's abandoning his ministry. But he doesn't just stop there. He wanders into the wilderness. And, and the fact that he has wandered into the wilderness sim- symbolically represents the, the idea that Elijah is turning his back on his people. That not only has he left his servant, he's left his ministry, but he's, he's saying, God, the, the people are yours. Judge them as you will. Do with them as you will. But this is too much. I can't carry this. It's, and, and so he abandons his calling. He abandons his people, his identity in many ways, and wanders even further into the wilderness. And there he finds a broom tree. And he lays down under this particular tree, and he asks God to take his life. God, I, I wish that you would just kill me. Just take my life because I'm finished. and I can't do what it is that you've called me to do. Maybe like Elijah, you have felt a weight that seemed like it was too much for you to carry. Maybe like Elijah, you've felt that what, what might be that crippling, that crushing heavy weight of the expectations of others, of the wants of, of others, of the, of the disappointment that comes when you know that you can't live up to what everybody else wants you to be or expects or thinks that you ought to be. Maybe Maybe the, the, the crushing weight of that expectation is just too much. Or perhaps maybe you feel that, that weight 
because you've just been through hardship. You've just, you've walked through truly the, the valley of the shadow of death as we think of it, that you've, you've walked through, perhaps even now, or walking through some of those darkest moments and you feel like, God, this is too much. I can't do this. I can't handle this. I can't carry this load. And maybe you've even gone as far as Elijah does to think it would just be better if I was dead. It would be better if, if life were over for me and I, I just wasn't even here at all. What we see is that even when Elijah reaches his lowest moment, God is ready. And although Elijah may think that he's done with God, the truth is God isn't finished with Elijah. And you need to hear this word this morning. This is for someone. You may think that, that it's over, that there's no reason to go on, there's no reason to continue, it's too much, it's too heavy. And you need to know that even though you may be done with God, God is not finished with you. He's not finished with you. He's not finished writing your story. He's not finished doing his work. The story isn't completed yet. How do we know? Because you're here, right? Just as we said last week, if you're not dead, then God's not done. And you need to press on and you need to continue and you need to allow God to provide comfort and strength even in the midst of your lowest moments. It's what he did with Elijah. I believe that's what he wants to do for you. See, Elijah's greatest problem here was not the expectation of others. Elijah's greatest problem here was not that the queen wanted him dead, though she did, though others were, were on her side. Elijah's problem wasn't just that it seemed as though an entire nation were turned against him. It's not even the sense that the entire nation has turned against God. Elijah's greatest problem in this moment is that he's taken his eyes off of his Savior and he's placed instead his eyes upon his self. Instead of looking to God and what God would have Elijah do and how God would work and the way the Lord wanted to lead Elijah, instead his eyes are on himself. Look at his response. Two times the Lord calls to him. Verse 9 and verse 13. And don't miss this, that in both instances, the same question is asked of Elijah and Elijah gives the same response. Two times we see this question. Elijah, what are you doing here? Think about that. Of all the questions that the angel could have asked Elijah, the question that is asked is, Elijah, why are you here? Or maybe, Elijah, why? Are you here? See, the angel's question is meant to arrest our attention in the story, but it's also meant to show us that Elijah had, had abandoned his post. He had abandoned his ministry. He had taken his eyes off God. He had begun wallowing in self-pity and doubt and all those things that the enemy wants to heap on us. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. And the angel comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, how did it come to this? Notice Elijah's response both times. In fact, notice the very first word of Elijah's response. I. Elijah, how did we get here? And what's Elijah's response? I. I'm the only one. I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. 
They've forsaken the covenant. They've, they've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, and only I, I'm the only one who's done what's right. Woe is me. I'm the only one. Well, if it's going to get done, I have to do it. I'm the only one that ever does anything right. I'm the only one. I'm the only. It's all on me. No doubt Elijah felt that. But was it true? And yet, because he had taken his eyes off of God, he lost sight of what God was doing. And instead, he focused on himself. And that led him down a dark and dangerous path. Now, hear me. I don't mean to say that every person who suffers depression is wallowing in self-pity. There is, there, there is a real chemical imbalance that occurs in people. And, and I want to be clear on this. That uh, this is not a judgment against anyone who battles depression. This is not a judgment saying that that's a sin and that you've turned your back on God and that you just need... I do believe, I do believe that God still wants to speak to you in the midst of your depression. I do believe that God's not done with you. I do believe that to the degree that you would look to the Lord and you would understand his call for your life, that you'll, you'll come to find that even in your dark moments, even in your weakness, God is strong. But there's something real about chemical depression, a physical bodily thing, and, and it's not wrong to seek help for that. In fact, quite honestly, it's, it's important and necessary to seek help for that. So if that's you, hear me. But in this case, in Elijah's case, what we find is that the real problem here is a matter of perspective. Elijah's no longer looking to God and what God has done. Instead, he's looking at himself. And in self-pity, he's thinking, it's all on me. I've got to, it's, it's Elijah again. I've got to do it all. And God says to him, no, Elijah, it's not on you. It's on me. And he uses this powerful experience to show Elijah that. So God, God says to Elijah, I want you to go to the entrance of the cave and I'm going to speak to you. And we see that there's an earthquake and there's great wind and there's fire, but God isn't in any of those things. And then what we read here is that there is a small voice, a whisper. But notice in your Bible that there's probably a footnote. And if you look at the footnote, you'll see that, that in actuality, in the Hebrew language, the, the literal translation is that there is a thin silence. That God speaks to Elijah even out of the silence. God is using this experience to get his attention, to show him that he's not finished with him. Don't miss don't miss in the story the, the allusions to Moses and the story of Moses, right? This wouldn't be lost on the original audience. See, Elijah, there's a connection here between the story of Elijah and the story of Moses. You remember that in Exodus chapter 33, God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passed by and, and Moses was able to look and see the glory of God, not God himself, but God's glory. And that when he came down off the mountain days later, that his face shone radiantly because of the glory of God. But you understand that happened atop Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, which is the other name that we know that by in the Old Testament. So here, Elijah finds himself on the very mountain where God appeared previously to Moses. The same place where the children of Israel stood at the, at the base of Mount Sinai and they, and they heard the lightning and the thunder and the, and, the, and the heaven shake and the voice of God. And we see some of those very same things happening here. There's an illusion here. That's meant to remind us that what God had begun with Moses and his people in the past, 
he's going to continue to bring to pass through the life and the ministry of Elijah. God wasn't finished with his people yet, just like he isn't finished with Elijah. And so Elijah hears the voice of the Lord speaking to him. And this is what, essentially, what God says, right? You're to go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Now, that's an, that's an accurate way to translate that, but I like the way that the NIV translates that particular phrase because I, I feel like it maybe helps us understand really what's happening here. The NIV translates that same phrase, return on the same way that you came. Return the way you came. In other words, this is what God is saying to Elijah. Elijah, go back to what you were supposed to be doing. Elijah, go back the way you came. Go back to what I called you to do. Go back to your people. Go back to your ministry. Go back to the work that I've given you to do. Elijah, take your eyes off of yourself. Fix your eyes on me and do the work that I've called you to do. Elijah, of course, thinks, but I'm alone. And God says, oh, you're not alone, Elijah. In fact, when you return, I'm going to send to you two different kings So even though Elijah felt as though the nation were against him, God says, I'm going to raise up two other nations and I'm going to use those nations. Elijah, you're not alone. Not only that, I'm going to raise up another prophet to come behind you. The prophet Elijah, who would go on to do other great things, who became the student of Elijah and eventually continued in the same work of ministry once God called Elijah to heaven. God says, I'm going to send you two nations and a prophet. Not only that, there are going to be over 7,000 of my people who have not bent the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. Return to the work that I've called you to. Return to the work that I've given you. There's some tremendous lessons that we learn in Elijah's life and Elijah's story. Amazingly, Elijah obeys. He does what God calls him to do. He returns the way he came He goes back to the ministry. He finds Elisha. He calls Elisha to follow after him. He goes on to do even greater things in the nation. And God uses Elijah to to continue the the work of, of, of the ministry and the lives of his people, to call people out of their sin into worship, to call people to live lives of holiness and obedience, of sacrifice. There are four important lessons that that we see in this story. And and I want to walk through these lessons together this morning. The first lesson that we learn from Elijah's life is this, is that God overcomes problems with his provision. God overcomes problems with his provision. What do we find here? That in this moment where Elijah is low, when he's laid down to die, he's just given up. God sends an angel to him. And what's the first thing that the angel does? He ministers to Elijah in that moment. He gives him something to eat and something to drink. Twice, in fact. God provides for Elijah's physical needs. He arose, he, 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 he ate, and he drank. The first time, he lays back down again. And then, after rest, he arose, he ate, he drank again. And then in the strength of that food, he carried on another 40 days journey. Now, it wasn't 40 days from where Elijah was to Mount Sinai. It's probably more like, oh, roughly eight to 10 days journey on foot. But it took Elijah 40 days. Again, that's symbolic, that's significant. Just as the nation spent 
the children of Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Elijah spent 40 days wandering in the wilderness to get to Mount Sinai where God was going to speak to him. And in the strength of what God has provided, Elijah continued on. God overcomes problems with his provision. Do you have problems in life? Who doesn't? I know you have problems because we all suffer problems, don't we? Look to God for provision in the midst of your problems. The second lesson that we learn from Elijah's story is this. God meets failures with his faithfulness. That's what God does here for Elijah. Elijah has essentially failed. Now, you might think, well, how did he fail? Because look at what happened in chapter 18. Look at the amazing things that happened. And truly they did. And yet, Elijah took his eyes off God. And he reached this this depths of despair because he had begun thinking, it's all on me and it's all about me and I've got to do it and it's too much and I I just give up. They want to kill me anyway. I just, I quit. And in that sense, Elijah felt like a failure. Maybe you've failed. Maybe you feel like a failure. Maybe you feel like you're never enough. Whatever you do isn't enough. Doesn't matter. It never adds up. It's never enough for the expectations of others. It's never enough for maybe the expectations that you place on yourself. It always comes up short somehow. You ever feel that? Listen, if you have failures, look to God. Because the ultimate remedy for your failures is the strength that only God can provide. God meets our failures with his faithfulness. You may be faithless, Paul writes to Timothy, but God will be faithful because he cannot deny himself. When you feel like a failure, look to God who is faithful. The third lesson we learn is that God hears complaints and gives us comfort. It's encouraging to know that God hears our complaints and that he comforts us in the midst of our complaining, which is what he does here with Elijah. There's not a strong rebuke, though Elijah probably deserved it here. Elijah, you're you're wallowing in self-pity. Elijah, you've missed the mark entirely. Elijah, this is sin. Instead, God just simply says, Elijah, go back the way you came. I'm not done with you. I'm not finished with you. God provided him comfort. Comfort in knowing that God heard his cry. Comfort in knowing that God was listening. Comfort in knowing that God wasn't finished with his people. Comfort in knowing that God wasn't finished with Elijah. And so he says, Elijah, go back the way you came. Your work isn't finished. God hears our complaints. And he comforts us in the midst of our complaints. He's a God of comfort, isn't he? A God of peace. A God who is with us, who is near us in our low moments. That when we think this is too much and I can't do it and I can't continue and I can't go on my own. And God says, I'm here. And I'm with you. And I'm listening. And I have a plan for your life. God hears our complaints and gives us comfort. And then finally we see that God responds to self-pity with his strength. He responds to our self-pity with his strength. Elijah thought, it's all on me. I've got to do it all. And what does God say? No, you don't, Elijah. In fact, 
I'm going to use you to raise up two other nations, to raise up two other kings. And not only that, I'm going to raise up a prophet behind you who's going to do even greater things than you. And then, just to show you that you're not alone, I'm going to, I'm going to preserve a remnant of over 7,000 in Israel who have not bent the knee to, the, to Baal. God responds by the thousands to Elijah's self-pity, doesn't he? I'm alone. God says, no, no. Elijah, I've got thousands just like you. You're not alone. Look to me. Do you wrestle with self-pity, self-doubt, low self-esteem? Do you wrestle with feeling like you're not enough? Look to God for strength. And you'll find, as Paul writes, that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. So I'll boast all the more in my weakness that the strength of God may abound. Let God show his strength in the midst of your weakness. What's incredible is, as I mentioned earlier, Elijah responds. And God works in the story through Elijah's obedience. God preserves a remnant. In fact, not only does God preserve a remnant, but if you turn to Romans chapter 11, what you find in the, in the early verses of Romans chapter 11 is that God preserved a remnant through Elijah, through these 7,000, and that it was through that very remnant, the seed of that very remnant, that God kept his faithful, obedient promise to his people. And that even as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he's reminding them that you're here because Elijah obeyed. Sometimes you need, to, you need to understand that there are others who will come behind you, others who will come after you someday, and that they will be where they are because you obeyed in this moment. So if you wrestle with self-pity, Look to God for strength. Obey him. Walk in his way of truth. If you have complaints, turn your complaints to him and find his comfort in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your pain and your sorrow. If you feel like a failure, look to God who is faithful. If you're walking through life and you're overwhelmed by your problems, understand that God has the power to provide. Look to God. And I think... It's important that we, that we understand that nowhere is any of this more beautifully portrayed for us than the cross of Christ. You see, Elijah was faithful. God preserved a remnant. And we can trace through the story of the Old Testament. We can draw a line, the, the scarlet thread as it's been described famously, to the cross of Christ. That we see that through the obedience of God's people in the Old Testament, that God was doing a work. He was making a way that would ultimately lead to Jesus and that through Christ, he would provide for our need sufficiently. When we are obedient, when we follow God, he shows us his power to provide. And I want to encourage you this morning that you would look to him. In a moment, we're going to have a time of response, a moment of invitation. In our invitation this morning, I want to encourage you that you would use this as your moment to respond in obedience to God. That you would use this as your moment to say, Lord, I'm yours. Use me as you would.
Maybe perhaps today you feel low and you came in this room feeling like, I'm not enough. I'm all alone and I can't do it. Look to God for strength and allow him to provide what you lack. Continue in obedience. Walk in his way of truth. Go back the way you came. That God may use you to accomplish his work in you and through you so that others may see and know Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, today...